This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. Welcome everyone. A few weeks back, I had the great privilege of interviewing a brilliant scientist, Dr. Jeremy England, currently a professor at MIT. And coincidentally enough, a couple weeks later, I had again the opportunity to speak with another brilliant physicist, this time astrophysicist Brian Keating, a professor at the University of California, San Diego, author of a newly released or soon to be released book called Losing the Nobel Prize. The juxtaposition of these two features is purely coincidental, although perhaps God had plans in mind. But I think it's actually a wonderful confluence because the two are both incredibly riveting, thoughtful, profound, and different. And to hear them almost back to back is a real treat and a real unique opportunity for our listeners. Coming up in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a feature with Hotels.com founder Bob Diener, a fascinating man, very accomplished, not only in business, but in Jewish ethics as well. And then we're going to have some special guests focused on Israel, including Ambassador Ron Dermer, among others, ahead of Yom Ha'atzmaut, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, let's go to today's guest. We are here with astrophysicist Brian Keating, a professor at the University of California at San Diego, a pioneering cosmologist and uh, author of a book about to be released, or perhaps by the time you're listening to this, already released, a book called Losing the Nobel Prize. How are you, Dr. Keating? I'm very well. How are you, Rabbi? Doing wonderful. Thank God. Um, so give us a little bit of background. I know that you are today, as I said, a pioneering cosmologist, a renowned physicist, but uh, I imagine you didn't start that way. So where were you born? What was your early uh, childhood like? Yeah, I started off as a, as a phys ed uh, instructor and a cosmetologist, and I just lapsed into the... No, I... Um... <laughs> So I began uh, my uh, astronomical astrophysics career way back in the early and mid-1980s when I was a kid growing up on the East Coast in Dobbs Ferry, which is uh, north of uh, New York City in in Westchester County. And one night I had awakened in the middle of the night thinking I had left the the light in my closet on and uh, wondering how I fell asleep with this enormously powerful luminary glaring at me and and yet when I got up I found that the light in the closet was off and but outside the there was this enormous round moon and next to the moon that was a uh, full moon I saw this you know mesmerizingly bright star and I just couldn't comprehend what that star could possibly be in order to be visible next to this you know this super luminary uh, the lunar uh, object and, you know, this is a couple of years before Google, uh, more than a decade before Google. So I couldn't exactly, you know, Google it as we would do nowadays, 1986, 1987. And so, uh, so I had to wait. I had to wait until the New York Times came out on Sunday. And I picked it up and I looked in the back of the, of the, of the section that was entitled Cosmos, where they showed what the starry night sky would look like. And I saw it was the moon, and next to the moon, uh, the most likely thing that it was was the planet Jupiter. 
and I just couldn't comprehend that blew my mind that you could see the Hebrew planet, um, you know, Jupiter, you could see the planet, another world with your, with your naked eye without a spaceship or a telescope. So I just got hooked. I felt like it was so amazing, uh, to see these with the naked eye. And I could only, you know, imagine what it might look through, you know, using a telescope, but I had relatively meager means at the time and, and wasn't able to afford a you know, massive, uh, massive optical system. So what I had to do is, is continue working. I was working over the summer and, um, and then I got a supplement from a funding agency. You know, you're on the East Coast, right, near you know, Washington, D.C. And, and out there, they have all the, you know, NASA, they have the NSF, the DOE, the DOE, the DOD, all these three-letter acronyms. So I had to appeal to the MOM Foundation. My mother. <laughs> and she generously stu- supplemented my, my meager research account. So I became a, a principal investigator is what we call uh, people who get to use the telescopes nowadays. So I was able to buy a, buy a tiny little telescope and immediately got a, a thrilling view, even even more mesmerizing than when I saw the, these objects with my eye. And it How was, old were you in this story? This I was about, I was 12 years old. I was about to be 13. I was about to become a bar mitzvah, but I'm sure we'll get into that subject later on too. But when I actually was able to use the telescope for the first time and pointed at just wherever I could see with the naked eye, it was just phenomenal because you could see things that you, you couldn't even believe would exist. Not only did we have a moon, but you know, Jupiter had a moon and it had four moons and that you could see with this tiny little telescope. And, and the moon wasn't the smooth, you know, glowing disc. It was uh, filled with craters and mountains. And, and you could tell where asteroids and meteoroids had hit it. Uh, it's just phenomenal to see it. And I saw the rings of Saturn. And you can see that there's multiple rings of it. It looks like it has ears on it. Just phenomenal. And then I saw its moon. So, I, you know, I, I collected, you know, six moons, uh, you know, added five moons to my collection of moons uh, in just a day or two. And it was just an amazing thing that you could, you could reach out through this uh, very simple device and capture images of distant worlds. It was just, just, just breathtaking. I'm curious, what did this telescope cost back in the mid-1980s? Back in those days, yeah, this is pre-Amazon. Uh, you know, so I probably had to get it at Sears, you know, not known <laughs> for their, you know, colossal, uh, and, uh, you know, selection of astronomical equipment. <laughs> it was probably, I think it was about $80 at the okay. time, which was pretty expensive. Nice. Yeah. So that was nice from the MOM. Yeah, the MOM Foundation. Uh, that's beautiful. So now around this time, I guess, did you, um, did, did you take that pursuit very seriously in, in, into your school work? Did it immediately translate into like a formal engagement, a formal yeah. academic pursuit? It became, you know, apparent to me that I was interested in scientific and technical things, although I, I was not put on a track. I was a, I was a good student in kind of the humanities <laughs> subjects at that, uh, you know, throughout my, my childhood. I was a good reader, a good writer, um, but I've never been particularly had an affinity for mathematics or science. Um, except to, you know, torture frogs or something like that. Or, you know, we get <laughs> that, to do They that. say that may presage a, a serial killer. So <laughs> that, maybe I'll, right. I'll edit that out. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't, don't forward that on. Um, so I was able to, you know, kind of translate this, this visual kind of appreciation for these objects into a formal, more mathematical and quantitative pursuit of them. And that made it really interesting to me to figure out, well, you could actually measure how far apart the stars are uh, from the earth. And you could do that using 
using basically geometry and, and trigonometry and things, you know, so I had a, I had a appeal to get into a, to the more advanced math class that would take me on to the calculus and beyond level. Um, and I wasn't able to do that, um, you know, all at once. It took some time to do that. And then, you know, I became an, a very strong science student at that time. But I never thought for a moment that I could become a professional astronomer. I thought it was like, you know, being a wizard. No, no one's going to pay me <laughs> you know, to do that or like professional video game tester. I, I know that such careers exist and you know, probably some of your, your clientele that you uh, that listen Sorry, to. My college students, can, some of them uh, major in that. So. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Uh, so, um, yeah, so now it wasn't clear to me at all that you could be a, in a professional astronomer, that somebody would pay me to do this. And, and now I say, you know, they pay me not so much, but they, they do pay me. Uh, and yet it's a job I would do for free, but you know, don't tell Jerry Brown, my boss, because <laughs> I have some ideas what to do with that money. There you go. So where, um, I assume you went to college afterwards to study this, you know, this arena, I guess, astrophysics or uh, yes. aerospace at Maryland where I work, it's aerospace engineering. What, um, where did you go to school and did you get, more deeply invested at that point? Yeah, so I went to a uh, college in Cleveland, Ohio called Case Western Reserve University. It's mostly a technically focused school in one hand, uh, very strong liberal arts as well and medical school and stuff. But but primarily I, I'd gone in originally as an astronomy major. I thought it would be so cool to be able to do that. And um, And yet when I got there, I found that college astronomy was, it was too uh, ethereal. It was too philosophical it was too you know kind of just concerned about about you know more more simple kind of matters or or in some sense more more as i said weighty philosophical issues without any tangibility and and uh, you know the talkless wasn't there it, it wasn't it wasn't something you could really grab i like to build things i was always good at working on my car working on models building airplanes you know massive lego projects but i right. wasn't able to um get that satisfaction from, you know, just merely this theoretical pursuit. So I wanted something more concrete, more practical. Plus I still wasn't convinced I could get a job as an astronomer, but I knew people always needed engineering as you mentioned. And so I decided I would switch my focus of my studies to major in mechanical engineering. And there I found the antidote to all things, you know, theoretical, philosophical. I was really very much concerned with the practical details and memorization of rote concepts and equations and formulae without any, in my mind, creativity. And so I looked and hungered really for uh, a compromise between these two different approaches between the, you know, purely rote memorize, you know, this formula, et cetera, approach of, of engineering disciplines and application of those disciplines. And then between that and the purely theoretical realm of astronomy. And I found that in experimental physics. And that is what I later majored in. So I became a physics major. And that's sort of the, the average between the astronomy and an engineering uh, disciplines is, is, is experimental physics. And then my subspecialty when I went to graduate school at Brown University was in uh, experimental cosmology, which means that we, um, we do experiments on the entire universe. No, we don't do that. We can't actually <laughs> do an experiment as, as a cosmologist. Uh, for one thing, there's only one universe. So what are you going to compare the results of your experiment to? Uh, even if you could take a, you know, Hashem's eye view, God's eye view of, of the universe and do tricks on it, you still really wouldn't be able to get a meaningful, you know, what they would call statistically significant result because there's only one entity, at least so far as things stood 
about 20 years ago when I got into cosmology. I was going to ask, are you, does that mean you're not a, a multiverse guy? Is that, uh... Well, I, I always say, you know, trying to debate the, the debate between those adherents of the multiverse hypothesis and the opponents of the multiverse hypothesis makes the Israeli-Palestine conflict, you know, some very <laughs> simple and, and, you know, like an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. <laughs> Um, so there, there's very much heated debate about that. My, my philosophy there is agnostic in the sense that you should not presage your you know, opinion based on your own internal desires of your, of your heart, of your eyes, of your mind, what you want to see. Uh, and that leads to this very perilous situation of you know, what's called confirmation bias, sure. psychological predilection to select favorable evidence that comports with your hypothesis and reject evidence that disagrees with it uh, under the guise of doing it all scientifically and outlier rejection, et cetera. So, you know, I think the multiverse hypothesis is very interesting. I think it's ultimately, you know, potentially uh, uh, represents a challenge to science and scientists who believe in it, because I think you need sort of a certain amount of amuna faith to believe in something which by almost by definition can't be tested. It lies outside the realm of our universe and inaccessible in many ways. And some of the predictions that, so the multiverse hypothesis I should mention for your listeners is, is the one that conjectures that our universe is not alone, just as we are not the only planet in the solar system, just as our star is not the only star in the galaxy, just as our galaxy is but one of maybe 500 billion galaxies in the, in the observable universe. Well, just keep extending this Copernican reasoning chain and you would get that or perhaps our universe is not the only universe. And, and for some people, in particular secular scientists, that's very appealing because it offers a possibility for the creation of the universe from nothing so to speak, and that this would then make our, our universe just a happy accident that happens to support biological conscious life such as us. So there are people that believe that hypothesis, and they actually believe for the first time there's mathematical evidence for it called the theory of inflation. Um, and yet there are others uh, who believe that uh, we shouldn't be so quick to assume that that's true, in particular, merely because it might comport with what we believe to be the, you know, the hidden, inscrutable beginning of the universe. I, I want to dive more into your, uh, you know, your, your perspective on those issues, and especially as they relate to Judaism and, and religion in general. But I want to really rewind first and, and go yeah. back to understanding where you were from a religious, theological, spiritual perspective early on as a 12-year-old young man, child, gazing through that $80 you know, MOM sponsored <laughs> telescope. Uh, where were you standing on the uh, religious spectrum at that point? So like many, you know, of my fellow members of my Orthodox synagogue's board of directors at age 13, I was an altar boy in a Catholic church. So I know, <laughs> typical I know trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that you have a, you know, very similar history. Um, so, uh, but in all seriousness, that, that is actually my, the, my, my religious, <laughs> Worldline uh, did originate. Um, well, I should start from the very beginning. When my parents uh, you know, had me, they were both born, you know, biological parents are both Jewish, <clears throat> but they weren't practicing. You know, they would, they would maybe go to temple once a decade or so, um, and 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 uh, it wasn't uh, predominantly important. My father was essentially an atheist, 
And my mother was, um, you know, she, she was, you know, she had enough things to deal with the, the two of us, my elder brother and myself. Um, so I think she just wasn't really particularly interested, uh, very culturally Jewish, you know, we'd go to Pesach Seder, we would get together with the Jewish side of the family, you know, for all the major Jewish holidays, but it was really just to eat, you know, that was the, that was the, the tie that, that bound us together. And then my parents got divorced and set separated and divorced. And when I was about seven, my mother remarried and she remarried an Irish Catholic man named Keating. So, so my original birth name was Axe, A-X. Um, my father's name was James Axe. And she remarried. I lived with her and my older brother and, and I lived with her. And so we took on her new married name, which is Keating. So that's why I have the... You must you have been know. young at that point. I was, yeah, I was only seven or eight at the time. Yeah. And in contradistinction to my parents, biological parents, lack of Jewish observance, my stepfather's family was, you know, they were Haredi, you know, they were, they were seriously observant uh, <laughs> Roman Irish Catholics and they would go to mass every weekend and they would go to on every Sunday and every holiday. And, you know, when I was here, I was, you know, for a while I was getting both holidays, you know, I was getting Hanukkah and Xmas presents and I was getting, you know, uh, um, from my Jewish you know, side of the family, get a matchbox car belt you know at age eight that wasn't so good compared to the evil Knievel racing set jump over the Grand Canyon you know I get for for the Christian holidays so um so it was uh you know for in a simplistic sense it was very much more appealing and from a from a real, you know, true point of view I mean the Jewish side of my family was not very happy when my mother married an, a Gentile and can, had us converted to Catholicism at a baptism, and this is all, you know, 10, 11, 12, confirmation, all the whole thing. And, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a, a you know, I'm a all or nothing in some sense. I, I like to do things right. And I, and I realized, you know, if I really wanted to be, to go all the way as, as, a, as a Catholic, you know, I kind of had to start early. And, and so I went to become an altar boy with the priest at our Catholic church uh, in Chappaqua. We were living in Chappaqua, New York at the time. Before and, Hillary and Bill. Yeah, this is right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they were the later, later day uh, neighbors, uh, carpet bagging neighbors. So they, uh, so, uh, so every Sunday I would go to, to the, uh, <clears throat> to church and I would pass the communion wafers out and I would uh, pass the basket and I would listen to the sermons and, and the Monsignor, Father Skelly, he was, he was an amazing guy. He was super brilliant, charming, funny, witty, an older guy, you know, he reminded me of like my grandfather or something, just super kind, warm. And, and the audience was packed and it was just the fellowship really appealed to me. And, uh, and this is at age 13, you know, so I never prepared for a bar mitzvah. I still have never had officially a bar mitzvah ceremony. Uh, my oldest son wants me to have one every year. I think he thinks we I'm going to do get... something on the podcast right now. Well, <laughs> really? You get the rabbi <laughs> discount. That's right. That's it, baby. <laughs> for the Jews, very should... low price of. <laughs> yeah, Jews, you should bar mitzvah. Um, <laughs> I love it. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I ended up, uh, you know, getting really into that. And that, as you remember, was the time I got my first telescope. And so. I started this, this confluence of religion and science kind of all occurred within me at the same time. Uh, and it would turn out that science would sort of win in the sense that I became much more interested in, in, in science and scientific discoveries 
than I did, you know, first of all, I was pretty daunted by, you know, I knew it would be hard if impossible to become a professional astronomer, as I said, but I knew, and, and that was just, you know, because it's such a rare position to have, and I don't even know anyone who was an astronomer at the time, uh, but I knew people who were priests, and I knew what was required to become a priest, and, you know, as you'll probably recall from when you were 13, yeah. a year old boy, you know, it's not the, it's not the thing you're most, you know, fixated on, in terms of, you know, job description requirements. So I, I didn't, I didn't think I could remain, you know, Shomer Nagia and, and, and be isolate in isolation for, uh, from women for my whole life. So, uh, that was one element in the, uh, in the decision to, you know, the reduction of my observance as a, as a religious practicing Catholic. Did, did you experience direct like sort of contradictions for intellectually or was it more just like you could only put your focus, your attention in one no, I don't think I experienced something, anything uh, intellectually that I felt was wrong with it. And I'll, I'll come back to that hopefully yeah. later on, because I feel like a lot of religious you know, men and women, especially our fellow uh, members of the Jewish faith, you know, it's kind of the 13-year-old, you know, rite of passage of becoming bar mitzvah. Really, for many people, such as my father, who did have a bar mitzvah, that represents the, you know, graduation from Judaism, the emancipation when you're no longer required to do anything Judaically and you, you know, kind of throw things out. I never had that scenario. So I never, uh, I never was confronted with the really deep notion of, you know, were there theological problems in, with the religion of Catholicism? But looking back, you know, I don't think I was mature enough to really appreciate and attack it from a religious angle. And so my scientific objection was, well, you know, they had the Catholic Church at the time still had not pardoned Galileo for the discoveries that he made with his two-inch telescope, you know, which he got from a four-letter guy, Hans Lippersche from the Netherlands. He had made a copy of this telescope in the late 1500s, early 1600s. And Galileo, when he looked at the moon and the moons that go around Jupiter, he was led to the to the conclusion that the, that the earth must not be the only center of the solar system. And of course, the Vatican later persecuted him uh, dreadfully for doing so. So when I found out about that, that was really kind of the last straw. I mean, I, I could, you know, I could put off the, the celibacy for, for a long time. I could, you know, deal with, with, you know, some of the, maybe some of the inconsistencies or, or whatever that I saw, but I, I couldn't really countenance abject, what I saw as anti-intellectualism. And it actually wasn't until 1992 that uh, Pope John Paul pardoned Galileo formally after 400 years nearly. Um, so it was just astonishing to me. And so that led me you know, to, lose, to lose my religion in that sense uh, of Catholicism. And you know, I also always you know, think of it, because I think it's kind of shallow looking back on it, but, but I also think it's kind of shallow when, when you encounter you know, what I call it and what they call themselves, these militant atheists, you know, the Dawkins, the Lawrence Krauses, the Carl Sagan's, the Stephen Jay Goulds, maybe, uh, although he's less so, or he was less so, but, but still the Sam Harris's, you know, these are people that had Jewish educations up until age 13, and then they quit. And yet no Jewish scientist today would accept the math or physics proof from a 13 year old uncritically. You know, they would say, you don't have the expertise, you don't have the knowledge. I mean, I can imagine even a rare case. I mean, Einstein was in his mid-20s when he did what many people regard as the greatest work in physics. So I think it's possible to overstate the, the wisdom of a 13-year-old. So I don't take it as, well, I had so much wisdom at the time I could reject it because I certainly didn't become uh, religiously observant as a Jew at that time. That took much longer. 
so what was that journey? I, you know, I, I imagine you went into college, yeah. you went to Case Western, mm-hmm. you said that to Brown, where I assume you pursued a PhD. Um, sure. And what was that? Uh, what was the journey like from there? So, yeah, so going to college uh, was, you know, more or less a, a, a devout atheist. I, I was, you know, basically, you know, I, I felt like, well, if, uh, if Christianity had some logical failures in it that I couldn't, I couldn't really deal with or had issues that I couldn't deal with, and if Christianity was, the, was based on Judaism, you know, in my knowledge, right? The Old Testament, I mean, it's good marketing, right? The Old Testament, out with the old, in with the new. So just like, you know, trigonometry, you could call trigonometry new geometry, right? So you, if you wanted, you could call uh, geometry, you know, properties of circles and squares and triangles, you call that old geometry. And you can call trigonometry new geometry. But then if somebody comes along and says, well, actually, old geometry is wrong. And it had this problem and blah, blah, blah. That means necessarily that new geometry is wrong. Okay, so if A, then B, and if A is, is not proven, provable or not A, then not B, right? But I also made the other logical fallacy that you say not B, then not A. And so I felt, well, if Christianity has these problems and flaws logically as I saw them, you know, certain issues with inconsistencies with the Old Testament, et cetera, that I felt, I don't have to believe in either one because if the new and improved version is wrong, then the old and and, uh, outdated and stayed version is doubly wrong. So I was an atheist for many years, you know, more than 15 years probably. And then after graduate school, I was working as a, as a postdoctoral scholar at Stanford. And then I I received a fellowship to be working at Caltech in, in Pasadena, California. So I moved West from Brown, to Stanford and Northern California, then eventually south to Caltech. And if I keep going, you know, from there I went to Stan, San Diego. Now I'm going to, you know, next stop, Tijuana. Tijuana. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, I did go pretty far south, as I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, I actually went as far south as you can go many times in my life. But at any rate, uh, getting back to my uh, Jewish roots, when I came back to Judaism, it was really precipitated by September 11th, of all things, and really feeling like, you know, that there were these forces arrayed, you know, kind of felt like, well, the Holocaust was, you know, so many years ago, it wasn't really relevant you know, to me and, and, you know, being in intellectual circles, especially in a liberal, you know, Ivy League school, well, the, you know, Israeli-Palestine conflict, you got to side with Palestinians, you know, they're poor, oppressed people and the Israels, uh, you know, are just kind of the victims of the Germans. And so now they're just doing to the power Palestinian. Yeah, so you get the whole nonsense that you get on a modern college campus, Ivy League or not. You hear the same things here in San Diego or in Oklahoma, I assume. But then I started to see, well, what is going on? Why are there so many forces arrayed against, you know, Jews, Israel? There, there's something important about this, you know, this tiny, minuscule, infinitesimal part of the population. And what was that? And I wanted to explore more about it. And around that same time, my older brother had moved from um, being, uh, he went to law school at Cardozo Law School, part of Yeshiva University. Um, and he had moved out to the West Coast to live with me in, in Pasadena. And then he became uh, at a lawyer at a law firm and there was a guy there who wore a kippah and he got very interested in, in you know, what's a kippah on your head? And the guy was like, well, you went to Yeshiva University Law, like, didn't you meet any? He's like, yeah, all my best friends were rabbis. But they never had invited him over for Shabbat. They never, you know, had him over for a holiday, anything like that. Even his, his rabbinical friends. 
and the outreach there was not so strong. But on the West Coast, it was very laid back, very relaxed. And not only did they invite my older brother to do things, he, he would invite me. And then I would start to learn. And, and as I said, this was just after September 11th. And it was just a very, um, it was very exciting to go back. I had to, you know, teach myself Hebrew. Um, you know, I read like a, you know, a third grade robot that's broken half the time, but, but I, you know, I can, I can understand some of the biblical Hebrew and, and found it really fascinating. You know, to my brother, it wasn't as fascinating. He was a lawyer, you know, he was trained in, in legal disputations. And, you know, once you do the, once you read through Tanakh or you read through the, the Torah, um, you know, it's on to other more, you know, it always seems like, well, now we're going to a PhD class, you know, now you covered the undergraduate with the Torah, uh, and, and now you're going really, you know, we only want you to study the really advanced stuff. And I really, that really appealed to me because I had never been burdened to have to do that for a case law class the way that he had. So for me, it was really exciting to learn all the, well, who really does own a shmata that, you know, two people find around a corner or whatever, you know, that was really uh, kind of a fascinating subject to me. And so I went to a summer program that was put on in, in Santa Barbara, California by Mahon Shlomo. Heritage Retreats. Heritage Retreats, that's right. I just so it was just with uh, Rabbi Kreitenberg uh, the other day. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. if you see him, give him my best. Yeah. What year was uh, that that you were there? This is 2002, I think. Okay, because yeah, I, I was there in the summer of 2003. Okay. Oh, maybe I was there with you. Yeah, summer of 2003. Let me think about that. Now, it must have been 2002, the summer of 2002. Yeah. Okay. But I, I went up there. I'm happy to take credit either way. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> you owe it all to me, Brian. That's right. Yes. I'll send you the, 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 the down payment later on. Uh, so yeah. And then I decided to go to Israel and, and I went to Israel just for a couple of weeks around Hanukkah of 2003. No, no, 2002 it was. And, you know, decide for myself if I wanted to make the shift from, you know, Caltech, high stakes postdoc in astrophysics and cosmology and leading this huge project that I was putting together and see if I wanted to, you know, take time off and learn. And I decided I didn't want to take time off and learn. And I went back to Caltech, but I always had this, you know, very deep affinity and connection personally, spiritually and professionally with Israel. And so, you know, nowadays I have many, many collaborators that I work with in Tel Aviv and, and even in Ariel University, which is in the West Bank. So I've tried to keep up the connections and have the best of both worlds, which it's, you know, thank goodness it's turned out to be, uh, I've been quite lucky in many ways and blessed. As you were growing, and of course, it sounds like your Jewish renaissance, so to speak, yeah. took place at an older age and a more advanced, you know, more mature point intellectually in your life. So how did you at that point begin to reconcile some of the challenges that had earlier dissuaded you from religious yeah. Life. That's a good question. So, in, in, you know, I hate it when people, you know, compare themselves to Albert Einstein, but, but I'm actually <laughs> going to compare myself to Albert Einstein, not in, fit, not in his physics. So he said once that what made him different uh, and made him special was that he never asked questions of his parents about science. Like he never asked, you know, why are rainbows the way they look? Uh, you know, why are famously, what would happen if you traveled at the speed of light and looked at yourself in a mirror? Like he never asked himself and he was thankful. Um, to the old one, as he would say, uh, that he never, that he never asked those questions of his father. Cause nobody knew, right. Nobody knew until Einstein at age 25. Right. So when Einstein at age five, he asked his dad, he would have, his father could have only said, that's just the way it is. Or, you know, God does it like that. And, and, and he wouldn't have ever brought with it the intellectual apparatus, the, the, the toolkit that he later developed. And we wouldn't have 
certainly would have been delayed in getting a lot of the results that we later did get when he turned 25 and had this huge intellectual capacity and capability. For me, I'm not comparing myself intellectually with, with Einstein, but just that I didn't really think about religion until I was much, much older, until I was, you know, my late 20s. And so it brought with me maybe not the Einstein level of religious, uh, you know, introspection, but it did lead me to approach it from a, a standpoint of I'm already established in my career. I'm already established as a scientist. I, I understand the scientific process. And I've read a lot more and I've experienced a lot more, whether it's, you know, my adventures with Christianity, my daily interactions with, with people of other faiths, you know, Baha'i, Islam, whatever. It's just in academia, it's impossible not to meet such people and, and really learning and growing and, and all the different traditions and, and especially, you know, being well-versed in atheist arguments because that's the dominant, you know, over 70% of the most prestigious, you know, group of scientists in the world, arguably the National Academy of Sciences are atheists. Atheists, they don't believe, you know, in, in a God, uh, not just ag or agnostic. Um, and I became, you know, slowly, the, I think what I, what I, where I've transitioned to, I think is a natural standpoint. I don't call myself, you know, an Orthodox Jew, but I'm a practicing Jew. We observe Shabbat with my fam my wife and kids. We attend an Orthodox synagogue, as you said, as I said earlier, I'm on the board of this Orthodox synagogue and Judaism is a central part of my life. That said, I think, you know, the thing that speaks to me most about Judaism is the willingness to question and the willingness to literally wrestle with the issues of God. And if you don't wrestle with those issues on a daily basis, I feel that you're not intellectually a serious person. I mean, you may, you know, you may think about, you may think your case is so open and shut that there is no God that you no longer have to rely on it. But I think that's as religiously dogmatic as an Orthodox person or a devout Muslim or, or something like that. So I think at worst, or at least a, a scientist should be a devout agnostic in that they should be open to the possibility uh, for they should know better than anyone that you can't prove that there's no God, right? If you could prove that there's no God, just like if you could prove you can't prove that there is a God. I think that the most interesting thing is to explore the deepest mystery. So it's no accident that I study the origin of the universe, which is the one moment in time which may be forever hidden from us and may forever be a mysterious uh, entity to comprehend. And yet I also think God is in that same category. You know, and wouldn't wouldn't the average you know member of that seventy percent National Academy of, of Sciences wouldn't they say respond to you you know well I don't need to disprove it there's it's not within the realm of the perceptible or perceivable reality you know the spaghetti monster or whatever the you know the other yeah. you know would be I don't have to disprove why do I the burden of proof is on you right so I would say well I mean. You know, is there a reason that you have to read Shakespeare? I mean, that'll be the first level. You know, I think there are many different arguments against such, such, you know, statements, but I think, you know, one argument is, do you have to read Shakespeare? Of course not. You don't have to read anything. You don't even have to learn how to read, but I think reading enriches your life. I think intellectual, um, you know, uh, you know, confronting intellectually issues that are not provable, that are, that are open um, in, in many ways to growth, to a person being open to growth rather than being ossified. I think uh, the, the aspects that are beneficial that have been you know, proven in, throughout history just of, of the benefits of leading a religious life. And I don't mean the Pascal's wager where you act religious because just in case there's a God, then, you know, like God is, is going to be tricked. Oh, well, like, you know, Rabbi, Rabbi, uh, you know, thought he was really, you know, pulling a fast one on me and it worked, you know, he's in, you know, come on up. But um, I think that was always kind of shallow, but 
I think, you know, when you, when you look at it, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking, uh, you know, Oliver Shalom yeah. has passed away yesterday. And, you know, I, I look at what he did, his greatest accomplishment in many ways was his book, the, uh, A Brief History of Time. And that's a book that, you know, is, is now again became a bestseller, number one bestseller. <laughs> and uh, after 30 years after being in print the first time. So why is that interesting? Because he wrote this book that's endured and captivated the public. By the way, you know, only 1% of the public has ever really read it cover to cover and maybe half of them understood it cover to cover. But more than that, it shows the endurance of this idea that it lasted for 30 years. But now take a step back. And, and look at, say, the Torah. The Torah's been around 100 times longer. And I hope to God, you know, that nobody reads A Brief History of Time in 100 years because I think, I hope all the ideas have been superseded by better ideas. Just like now we don't talk about the ether. You know, 100 years ago, there would be a brief history of the ether. And it would be written by you know, eminent scientists, Maxwell and, and Faraday and all sorts of people. Um, so the job of science keep, keeps subsuming and, and improving and correcting and, and getting rid of ideas. But if you have something that's been around for 30 centuries, uh, it has something enduring that transcends the scientific realm. So I would say, you know, you don't think about something in terms of its ability to be proven or disproven in a disputation. We look at as a pragmatist, as a, as a, as a um, you know, pragmatic realist, that you say, well, what benefits does this belief system have? Or at least if you don't believe in it, because you're afraid, you know, that you'll then be encumbered to act upon those beliefs. If you don't in that sense, then, then even if you just look at it as a work of scholarship, and, and I think, you know, you have to be pretty sophistic to think that it's not a great work of literature. I know that there are, you know, treatments and attacks of the Torah and, and even the New Testament, but let's just fix, stick to the New, Old Testament of the, the Torah because I, that's the book that you and I presumably know best uh, of those two. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, if you look at it, uh, it's, it's supremely deep and as a literary work. And I think that the, you know, kind of attacks against it are, are typically straw men that are erected by people who don't want to have the obligation of practice. Because of that, they then burn the straw man that they created. But, you know, there's no reason that I have to care about what they say. I mean, I think, you know, the proof of the belief system is in the byproducts of that belief system. And if you look at the atheists, and, and there are happy atheists, you know, there, there aren't many, um, and there are unhappy religious people. And there are, there are people in the middle, agnostic, that can be in both worlds. But my complaint against those that are agnostic, and there are many wonderful agnostics, and these are people that are very open to Judaism being true, but they also don't go to the same synagogue that uh, Richard Dawkins doesn't go to. They all, there's no practical way if you're an alien looking down at them. You could not distinguish you know, Richard Dawkins from my friends, say, uh, Freeman Dyson, who's a wonderful, actually, Freeman Dyson's a bad example because he does go to church every, every uh -huh. Sunday, and he's a wonderful, but he, you know, he's basically just a, he's a practicing, non-believing Christian. And he's a very deep thinker. He won the Templeton Prize for his thoughts on science and religion. So um, I think the proof is in the, is in the adherence. You know, if, you, if you see the, the type of people that have a religious observance, and I don't think it's just this delusion. I think there are actual practical benefits. Uh, you know, for one thing with my children, you know, when they come home and they say, well, you know, somebody hit me. And I'm like, who did it? No, I can't. That's gossip. I can't tell you. Or, you know, like, I'm going to get dressed, you know, even though I really feel, don't feel like going out. I say, why, why do you say that? He's like, well, I have to obey you. And, and there's something wonderful about that in a sense that kids really crave it. They crave the, 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 the discipline and authority. 
And uh, all this is not to say that religion doesn't have a lot of challenges that I think a lot of its adherents don't face up to. And, but I think that there's work to be done on both sides of the theist and non-atheist debate. How have you dealt with sort of the basic perceived contradictions between general cosmology and religious doctrine or theological assertions of origin yeah. of the universe, age of the universe, things of that nature? What's your uh, manner of synthesizing it or just reconciling? Yeah. So, you know, my, I always say, like, if you look at the Torah and you count the number of lines dedicated to what one could plausibly call cosmology or, or, or creation, it's under 30 verses of, you know, Genesis 1. And then if you count the total number of, you know, Pesukim verses in the entire, it's 35,000. So you're talking about something that's 0.1% of the total. So I ask you, you know, you pick up a book and it says, uh, and it says, you know, uh, great Jewish sports stars. And it's, and it's a thousand page book. It's not the, uh, <laughs> the Python version. Thousand, <laughs> but then you read it and it's all about the NBA. And then like, there's a couple of guys, Jewish guys in the NBA. Like, it's clearly not about Jewish sports stars. The title is misleading. And I think people put the Torah into, you know, they pigeonhole it. If you see a book that's mostly, now why does it have, why does it start with those verses as famous Rashi? You know, why doesn't it start with all these laws? I mean, most of the book of, of the Torah is, a, most of the five books of the Pentateuch are about, you know, laws of this, you know, small set of nomadic people living in, in the Middle East, right? So why didn't it start with the Ten Commandments or, or you know, as Rashi says, and the, you know, this is the first moon of, the, of all your moons of your calendar, um, which I like too, because both Genesis 1 and Rashi's claim of what should have been Genesis Genesis 1, both have astronomical uh, links to them. So I personally like that aspect. <laughs> no matter where you go, there's astronomy. But getting back to, you know, it's true that the Torah does start with that. Why does it start with Genesis? Why does it start with what you might say is cosmology? And clearly, I think, you know, the way that the Torah speaks is meant to do this magic trick that Stephen Hawking will likely never be able to pull off, which is to be relevant in its age and then to be relevant 30 centuries, 50 centuries, whatever. I mean, you can't imagine how, you know, how long a period of time that is. I just wrote a book and I'm hoping it'll sell copies, you know, a couple hundred copy, a couple thousand, whatever. And that, you know, but a hundred years, 10 years, who knows what it will sell. Um, and, and so, and, that, and just as a proxy for reading it. So why did it do that? Well, because it had to speak to people 3,000 years ago too. I mean, it wasn't, oh, okay, well, we, you know, the, the beginning of the universe in my, in my great-grandmother's religion was, you know, Baal worship, whatever it was, um, you know, there were all these gods that created the universe and made all these different things happen and made the rain and made thunder and made wind, et cetera. So it had to speak to them and say, no, actually, you know, not even the sun which was the number one God in Egypt, the most powerful, the God, the sun God, it was he or whatever it sun was created and it wasn't even created in the beginning. It wasn't even created on the first day. It was created on the fourth day. And so I think, you know, if it's clear that people who want to read it literally have an agenda, they want to prove that it's silly, that it's, that it's antiquated, it's arcane. But I think if you look at what it was trying to do, and that it can still speak to us today. Because if you don't want to believe that it literally describes 24-hour periods, then you can say, well, it's a scientific allegory. It's an allegory, rather. It's not scientific. It's, it's showing progression, forms. It has a message to teach us. But it's not a book about, it's not a book about evolution. You know, it doesn't mention RNA in it. Okay, fine. It wasn't talking. People didn't know what that was. And if they talk about right now, if I, if I show you this four-dimensional iPad, you know, that they're going to have in 100 years, you're not going to understand that either. Does that mean that all the stuff that you're doing today is, is, didn't happen? 
So I think, you know, there's the, the whole notion of, you know, God of the gaps. I think it's pretty simplistic. And I think it's a shallow intellectual way to look, to look at things that you don't want to grapple with. And if you can't grant your opponent in a debate the, the benefit of the doubt, that there, is, there was a message, everything that it says, you might not agree with it, but you would grant that same benefit of the doubt to a Shakespeare scholar. I think that you're not a real uh, intellect. I want to transition to the book that you've written and, and really to the story behind the book. Um, yeah. You referenced earlier that you've been very, very south. And I, again, yeah, south of Tijuana, uh, you noted. <laughs> and, um, and that you wrote a book with a very provocative title called yeah. Losing the Nobel Prize. So, so tell us the story behind your travels and this larger journey that has involved the Nobel Prize as it involved kind of your overall arching scientific uh, pursuit. Yeah, so the title of the book really uh, is, is sort of a double entendre. It, it really, in the beginning, it was meant to convey the fact that I had participated in this you know, a scientific experiment, which at one moment in time, exactly four years ago, uh, many people around the world claimed was going to win not only a Nobel Prize for people involved with it, but specifically I was going to win a Nobel Prize. And that wasn't far from my original motivation in creating the experiment to look for the very first birth pangs of the universe that, that we uh, were told would be indicative of this period of what's called inflation, when the universe expanded faster than the speed of light, a micro, 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 microsecond after its birth, or after its origin, if you will, and that would leave an imprint in its wake, basically distorting the fabric of space-time. And that we saw this imprint of, of these waves of gravity on um, the most ancient light ever available in the universe called the cosmic microwave background radiation. To see that pattern, we wanted to go somewhere where the light from the early universe that had been traveling for 13.82 billion years to reach Earth, we didn't want that to travel until the Earth hit a water molecule in the Earth's atmosphere and get absorbed and lost forever. So ideally, water absorbs microwaves and that's how your microwave oven works your microwave oven doesn't heat up the carbon and everything in the in the in the food it heats up the water and the water heats up everything else and also the food's mostly water so water absorbs microwaves so we want to go somewhere where there's very little water and most people say well, why don't you just go to space and i say well, why don't you give me a billion dollars because <laughs> it costs about a billion dollars to build you know a decent a satellite to do the kind of science that we wanted to do yes elon so musk wasn't around uh, offering uh, at the time yeah that's right he was not it was uh, 2004 2005 and so it came up with an, i came up with an idea that we could build a small telescope uh very similar in concept to galileo's original telescope and instead of uh, looking through it with your eye, we'd put very sensitive detectors uh, at the focus of this telescope. And instead of observing from Padua, you know, from Tuscany, uh, as Galileo was fortunate to do in his, you know, in his T-shirt and jean, you know, whatever he was wearing, <laughs> his cloak, his frock, uh, we were observed. We had to go to the driest place on Earth, which was the South Pole, Antarctica. And the United States has a base there, owned by the United States, because and only because we do scientific research there. Uh, astronomy, we study the atmosphere, uh, my colleagues study neutrinos, they study all sorts of crazy and interesting, fun science, not just astronomy. And because of that, we have a base there that's, uh, you know, it's a pretty, pretty good size, you know, it's about 100,000 square foot base there. And then we have these little satellite outposts where we can build telescopes uh, on the snowpack. And Is we it did hard it. to get access over there? In other words, do you, do you have to be on a waiting list? Do you have to apply? Do you have to, yeah. you know, how do you get in? 
Yeah, you can only go there. You can't, you know, open a Starbucks down there. You, ha you, ha you can only do scientific research in the entire continent. So the entire continent right now, it's, it's, uh, it's the beginning of, it's getting to be fall. It's almost winter. So anyone who's there in Antarctica right now in, in March of 2018 is going to be there until probably October, November. There's no flights in or out. There are no boats in or out. The weather's, uh, you know, just completely a nightmare to travel. It's so cold that if you were to land a plane at the South Pole in the middle of winter, the plane would be destroyed forever because all the fluids in it, all the oils, all the fuel in it would expand and crack and break the engine and break the lines and, and the plane would be rendered useless. So they don't like to do any flights down there in the winter. And so to get there, you need to go on a military plane and you're only able to go there in the austral southern summertime. So I went in December and January of both uh, two times, about 10 uh, and eight years ago or so. And I was able to stay there for a couple of weeks with my graduate students and my postdocs and collaborators at Harvard and Caltech and Stanford and other places. And they ship food in there? Like how do, how do people survive? Yeah, yeah. Well, so when I went there, uh, I was the first person to keep, keep Shabbos there, to keep put on tefillin at the South Pole. Wow. It was Hanukkah the first time I was there, uh, which was also uh, Xmas as well. And that was in uh, 2005, 2006. And so I brought a dreidel because I wanted to see if the dreidel <laughs> Spins the other way. Australian toilets, right? That's right. There's only the toilets. <laughs> so, um, so I brought all these uh, self-heating kosher meals made by La Brute. Wow. So I had it was funny because they let me. Usually, you can only bring one suitcase. It's, space is a real premium down there, even though we're, it's wide open. But to get stuff down there costs, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, per person if you were to pay for it. Uh, so we didn't pay anything. All we do is go from San Diego to L.A. to to a very uh, rich Jewish uh, city, uh, rich with Jewish tradition in New Zealand called Christchurch. Um, <laughs> and that's where we left from on, uh, on a cargo plane to Antarctica. And I was, I was, I was there for uh, the better part of the month of uh, December, the first time I was there, and then January, February, the second time. And so what, what did you experience there from a scientific perspective? So we were there to build and install the telescope because I said you can't get stuff in or out nine months of the year, essentially. So you have to get everything is compressed into three months. And during those three months, the sun never sets once. The sun is just making a slow circle arching over your head, you know, taunting you and never setting. And the only thing you can see that reminds you that there's something changing is sometimes the moon comes up. You know, the moon still rises and sets, but the sun doesn't rise or set but once per year which is pretty nice for us because we get to advertise that for the guy that spends a year of his life or her life down there, we say, we're going to pay you $75,000 and all you have to do is one night of work. Okay. It's not a big, <laughs> of course that takes six months of calendar time to do that. So we ended up um, building the telescope, installing it, testing it, making sure it's going to work. And this telescope operates like no other telescope, not like my mom's tel the telescope she got me. Uh, it works at near absolute zero and it's using detectors that are made of very advanced materials that can see the heat left over from very sheet from the Big Bang. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for particles of light called photons. And on these photons will be imprinted the imprimatur, the signal of the earliest moments of the universe, hypothetically called inflation. And the, the logical argument that has been made is that if we were to prove that inflation occurred, then it would be proof as close as you could get to proof that the multiverse is true. So well, we don't have time to discuss the, the mathematics behind that, but suffice it to say that almost all adherents of the multiverse hypothesis believe that the one prerequisite for it to be true is that there was a period known as inflation. 
and that inflationary period will make an imprint on these radio microwaves from the Big Bang that I looked for. Was it a strange phenomenon, you know, being a, a believer, so to speak, or a uh, theologically disposed person, potentially proving the multiverse theory, which is the one sort of undermining potential theory? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it was interesting because we did discover it, or so we thought. And that's kind of the main crux of of the book and and how that came to be. And the scientific forces that compelled us to to do such a thing and to say such a thing and the psychological forces and the competitive forces. The Nobel Prize is a very overarching character in the book. You know, I don't think it was ever far from any of our minds that 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 could be a possibility. So I think, you know, on on a practical sense, when you're down there, you're thinking mostly about, you know, do I need to put on this pair of gloves to turn this Allen wrench or, or not? And then when you get, get back and you're flying back and you're flying over this huge continent that, you know, dozens of people died trying to get to where you were escorted to, chauffeured to by the United States government uh, in such comfort and ease, then you can reflect. Then you can literally reflect on what you had accomplished and what you had, had done and the possibilities that it might lead to this glimpse of a vista of a time before time began. And I wouldn't say that the multiverse would invalidate God's existence. Uh, I would say its, it's alternative would be very interesting to think about its implications. So the, 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 on one side, you know, Superman is the multiverse. The other side, Lex Luthor, is uh, something called the bouncing or cyclic cosmology which has really been around almost you know, forever, no pun intended, but it suggests <laughs> that our universe is essentially the byproduct of a previous universe's demise. So our universe's origin came about thanks to the death throes of a previous universe collapsing in on itself with an unimaginable fiery furnace that then provided the raw materials of energy and matter to create in a bounce our universe. And that would be, I think, m- might be more problematic, although there are suggestions in the Talmud that, right. that God world's destroyed and world's created. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, and it was interesting because when we did pronounce that we made this discovery of inflation of the multiverse, you know, evidence for the multiverse, perhaps people around the world, both, you know, Jewish, Christian, uh, you know, all sorts of scholars around the world in theological circles were saying it was evidence for their, you know, brand of, of thinking. And then there were the atheists like Lawrence Krauss who were saying, oh no, this is, final proof that we don't need supernatural shenanigans, as he always derisively refers to them, to explain how the universe came to be. It actually came about as a quantum fluctuation from nothing. And so this bicep, my experiment, was called bicep. And that bicep experiment has validated that there is no God. And so it's interesting. And I think that will always be the case. I think people will always be able to find suggestions. You know, when the Big Bang was discovered, uh, it was discovered by one of the two discoverers, Arno Penzias, discovered the heat left over from the Big Bang. He was an observant Jew, and he still is. And he always felt like he wanted to be agnostic about it, although he had felt and his collaborator felt that the most compelling explanation before their discovery was that the universe had always been around. Not that it was uh, created from a cycle, but that it was basically a static eternal universe. Aristotelian, he, yeah. Yeah, Aristotelian. Einstein believed that too. Um, in some sense. So how could you get the static steady state universe? And I go through kind of the battles that took place back then and the battles that took place when we made our announcement, which is kind of the heir to the steady state versus Big Bang debate is the multiverse versus the cyclic universe debate. And I claim, you know, we're going to keep seeing these throughout history because uh, ultimately it may be that the traces of the 
smoking gun, you know, of the universe's origin are destined to always remain hidden from our view. And, and but that's okay. And, and I think, you know, as John Wheeler said, ignorance is like an island and, and you want to make the island, you know, have, has, have as big a coastline as, as possible, you know, because you want to expand your body of the island of knowledge, expand it and the ignorance. Yeah. So there'll be more and more things. The more I learn, the more I know, I don't know. And I think that sense of humility is important to, to keep in mind that we'll never reach the end of these debates. And there can be more than one mystery. There can be the mystery of the universe. There can be the mystery uh, of a God. And then within each one of those, you know, is God a personal God? Is God an all-knowing? Is he all-powerful? And then on the science side, you know, we go back to a microsecond, a nanosecond, a trillionth of a second. So can you always find more and more things to study? That to me is the unifying principle behind the two halves of my of my being as a spiritually you know practicing person and as a religious as a religious scientist in the sense that i am fervent about studying the universe with the tools that we have at our disposal what would be the protheistic uh, inter- interpretation of multiverse um i haven't given that so much thought i mean i think that that as as i said the multiverse has several problems with it in that it predicts this profligate universe with innumerable cosmoses that are not only somewhere, you know, more than one or two, but actually maybe a billion or maybe a hundred billion or maybe an infinite number. Right. You have an infinite number. How do you explain, you know, the origin of us? So you'd have to say that we are not unlikely that you and I are having this conversation, except I'm interviewing you and wearing the headphones in this conversation. Right. (laughs) Uh, And that's happening an infinite number of times. And then you can ask the question, well, can you actually falsify such a notion? Can you prove it? You know, most people think science is about proving something right. Like I have an idea, Eureka, and I'm going to go out and prove it. Uh, Use the the scientific method, check, you know, hypothesis, synthesis, you know, like you learn in high school. uh, And then you get the answer at the bottom. That's not really the way science works. It has elements of that in true science, but but not, that's not the uh, sum total of it. So I think, you know, when you look back on, on how you could actually prove or disprove whether the multiverse occurred, you'd have to, you know, really, if you're honest, you'd have to say at some level, it is an issue of faith. There are people that want to believe that the multiverse is true. And some of it may be not only faith, just, you know, casually as a scientist, like, I believe that these laws are so elegant that they must be true. Uh, But more that, well, I don't believe that there's a God. I actually believe that there is no God. And this comports with that argument that the universe can spontaneously generate itself uh, as a quantum fluctuation from nothing. And I think that those arguments are intrinsically intellectually dishonest in a sense, because I think they're driven by a desire to prove something, not necessarily to disprove something. And, And that I think is the latter being the more position of integrity. What happened with the experiments you did? You alluded to um, what seemed to be like this great discovery, perhaps wasn't yeah. what it was made out to be. And, and tell us sort of the conclusion of that story. So we had you know, sought this signal for a better part of a decade. And, and after building two experiments um, to go after this very same signal, we, uh, we found that we could not explain the signal by any other means other than the inflationary origin of the universe. and. In doing so, we really set off inside of our collaboration with, with Harvard and Caltech and Stanford and, and other institutions, we set off this inexorable series of events that were, you know, the inertia to release, the, the pressure to produce 
you know, it's, it's almost like the, you know, I, I once heard, you know, like a mother cow wants to give milk more than the cow wants to drink the milk and or an <laughs> artist wants to make the art more than the consumer wants to buy it or see it even. And once you got in that mold as a scientist, our currency, you know, I always say scientists are kind of like uh, small business people. I mean, we have profit and loss. We have incoming funds. We have to pay out things. We have travel expenses, personnel, you know, hiring, firing. But we also have to teach 20 hours a week, you know, which can kind of crimp our style, which, you know, I don't think, uh, I don't think uh, Tim, uh, what's his name at Apple, you know, has to teach 20 hours a week. But um, Tim Cook. Tim but, Cook, but, yeah. But anyway, the inertia behind this announcement became too difficult to to really stop and many of us thought there could be problems with the analysis and there could be an issue most prominent of all ironically was the most what i call the most humble substance in the universe which is dust so you know this isn't dust that like your vacuum cleaner picks up this is actually the byproduct of an exploded sun or an exploded star that left its uh, its detritus throughout, scattered throughout the universe. And if you've ever seen a meteorite, you ever gone to a museum and you've seen a metallic meteorite, you m- might have known that these things are very heavy, they're very dense, and they're very magnetic. And when you have tiny bits of those meteorites called micrometeorites, tons and tons of which the Earth plows through every day, these meteorites can get aligned in space when they're still meteoroids. They can get aligned by the magnetic field of the solar system, of the galaxy, etc. And in so doing, they can emit and absorb light and produce an exact mimic signal of the inflationary signal. And so the humblest substance in the universe, the smallest substance in the universe, in the sense, can present a signal that exactly was mimicking the signal that we were seeking. And along the way, you know, many of us were concerned about it. But in the end, we actually had done several different tests. So we did all these different tests to confirm that it wasn't dust. And the more tests we did, the more and more sure we got that it wasn't dust. And we went down this path. Eventually, it was essentially all but proven that it had to be dust or dust was equally likely as the signal that we saw. And this had come after these whispers of Nobel Prizes and, and just worldwide attention. Millions, tens of millions of people watched this announcement in the spring of 2014. And so needless to say, it took time, but what ended up happening was really an amazing glimpse into the scientific process, scientific personalities, and the psychology of being a scientist. And as I said in the beginning, scientists are humans. They're not immune to the forces that cause humans to stray, right? So what does the Shema say, the the credo of the Jewish people? It says, do not prostitute yourself. Do not follow your eyes and your heart and the desires of your heart that lead you astray. And I I always add like ashtray because because the (laughs) dust is kind of like smoke. It's like the ash in an ashtray. And literally we saw what we wanted to see because we knew not only would it would it win a Nobel Prize for us, but but more to the point that we would really confirm and prove this theory of cosmogenesis beyond a, a reasonable doubt. And I think that the whole episode shows science in a true light as an insider that I was to it. And then later coming to grips with, and then ironically and just completely serendipitously, I was asked the following year after this whole affair kind of came to a denouement, I was asked to nominate the winners of the next year's Nobel Prize. And, uh, you know, I thought about nominating myself. That'll be good. But, but they actually <laughs> say you cannot nominate yourself. So mm-hmm. I was one of the people asked to nominate the winners. 
It's too bad we hadn't met yet, Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You could have put in a good word. Yes. Um, I could have slipped you the invitation. Uh, <laughs> so when I went through that process, I was really, I found it appalling because the Nobel Prize, you know, uh, is, is basically what we in Hebrew call a tzava'ah, like an ethical will. And it's the same sort of a, a, a benediction, a blessing, if you will, but also you know, a wish for the future of one's progeny or one's, uh, you know, material wealth and as, as specific a fashion as could possibly be imagined. Alfred Nobel said, I want this done with my money to go to these specific types of people every year. And I had found that when they asked me to nominate the winners, they said, oh, ignore what he said in his will. And we know what we want you to do. And here's what we want you to do. And it had very little to do with what Alfred Nobel specified. And as you know, you know, one of the one of the 613 commandments is to never leave the dead unescorted. And that's because, you know, one of the reasons that it's such an important mitzvah is that it's something that you can never be repaid for. So, you know, somebody dies and you escort them, they're never going to pay you back, right? They're not going to take care of your body after you die. So conversely, you know, scientifically, logically, not obeying what they want to do specifically in their express written will and testament. That is one of the worst things you could possibly do because there's nothing they can do to you. You're disavowing what they had wanted to do. And they had, Alfred Nobel had no children. He never married. He had no offspring. And so this was the, the closest thing that he had. And I felt the almost ethical obligation to do that. And in doing so, found my own uh, version of an ethical will and what I wanted to have my children, my biological children, my ideological children, my, my nine PhD students, you know, what I want them to most remember me by, you know, hopefully uh, at 120, right? Which would be what? That I would want them to really see things like the accolades, the awards, the distinctions as sort of, you know, I came to find that the Nobel Prize is a sort of form of a Votazara, that it's actually tantamount to a religion as close as the 70% of these scientists who are atheists will ever get to a religion, it's the Nobel Prize. Because the Nobel Prize has all the elements that Judaism has, or Christianity. It has a, a high priesthood. It has the Swedish Royal Academy of Sciences. It has the, the saints, the prophets, the Nobel laureates, uh, who are sanctified and, and elevated uh, to such heights. It has, of course, many holidays. It has the, you know, the feast of coronation, which takes place when Alfred Nobel died, not on his birthday. It's kind of weird. And then, of course, it has its catechism, which is, you know, to benefit all mankind, you know, very lofty uh, uh, catechism instead of our father or the Shema. And then it has something that, you know, Judaism doesn't have, but it has golden graven images. It has, you know, it's instead of a crucifix or an icon, it has a likeness of Alfred Nobel on one side and two goddesses on the other side. And you literally bow down to the king of Sweden and you receive it. And I saw that in sharp relief, maybe just to, to close out you know, my encounter with this prize. When I'd written this book, as I said, it was a double meaning. It meant basically my, my search for the Nobel Prize that had gone been rendered unto dust. And then there was my feeling that the Nobel Prize needs to be gotten rid of and it's lost in its current form. We need to lose it and get and improve it to reform it for its own betterment. And so I looked at it and I had been railing against the Nobel Prize for a year. And then in May of 2017, a man named Duncan Haldane, who won the 2016 Nobel Prize that I nominated not him, unfortunately. I nominated other people for. So he won the Nobel Prize in 2016, the year that I was asked to nominate. And he came to UCSD where he had been a professor when he did his Nobel Prize winning work. 
And uh, not only did he give a brilliant, wonderful lecture, but he brought with him his Nobel Prize. He brought with him the very, you know, golden graven image that I had been railing against for more than a year at that point. And I saw people gathering around him and he was, you know, obviously enjoying it. Uh, and I have no problems with the Nobel Prize winners, obviously, but the, the people, they, they gathered, they were kissing it. They were posing for selfies with it. And then something happened and I, I had it in my hand. Uh, and then all of a sudden I had my, my iPhone in front, and I took a picture of me with it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I realized, you know, I used to think that the story of the golden calf was like totally ridiculous in the tour. Like how could these Jews who were supposed to be, you know, we're, supposed, we're so full of ourselves, you know, that we're so smart and so much better. And 30% of Nobel Prize winners are Jews and we're so proud of it. And we're so logical and rational. And I was like, how could they go out of the desert after, you know, these 10 amazing supernatural plagues and, and miracles and, and splitting of the sea, you know, how could they go out and then 40 days later or whatever, uh, a few weeks later, then bow down to worship an icon of gold that they themselves made? They're so stupid. But, you know, it's something that is deeply inherent in human beings. And that's another way that I think, you know, the Torah is relevant 3,000 years ago, you know, if you were to predict, well, what will 3,000 years from now people uh, really uh, worship? Will they worship, you know, college education, a Harvard degree? You know, my, my son and daughter are going to Harvard or UCSD or whatever. Or, you know, <laughs> will they have, you know, it's a Ferrari? Or, no, it's not going to be. There's always going to be something that the human being will worship and will elevate to the status of idolatry. And for scientists, ironically, who are atheists, I think it's it's interesting that they you know, sort of disavow this and, and they would never say that they worship something, but many of them do. And the story of my book is partially a reckoning of myself as a scientist, one who did want to win it almost at all costs for many reasons, and not the least of which because it does convey upon person the status of a god within physics. I mean, there's, there are more people that have walked on the moon and, and traveled through space on the space station and space shuttles than have won the Nobel Prize. There's more, you know, living, living people that have been in space than are living Nobel Prize winners in physics. So it's, it's quite an amazing accolade. I think it's the highest honor that, that society has. And I wanted to, uh, you know, sort of expose what it's doing to scientists and young people especially. And I, and I hope I've done that. Wonderful. Just in wrapping up, I'm just so curious from a personal perspective, how did it impact you? Was it painful? Was it embarrassing to feel like you were there and then millions of people louding and, and then all of a sudden, oh, actually not. You know, that, yeah. that sense of, I mean, you know, just kidding, you know, psych. Yeah. I mean, how did, that, how did that impact you personally, emotionally? That must have been difficult. Yeah. Well, so uh, describe how it did affect me emotionally and how the Nobel Prize affects other people generally, psychologically, I think. But by the time, you know, these things had kind of come to a conclusion, I was a different person than when I created the experiment in the first place. When I created the experiment in the first place, you know, a lot of it was driven by, you know, this was a sure path to getting tenure, you know, winning a Nobel Prize doesn't hurt your tenure case. And, you know, by then I'd long been tenured and, and received, you know, a fair amount of, of nice accolades and, and, and praise. And I just become much more comfortable than I was when I was younger. It's like when you think about what, what do they say on the Oscars? You know, they had the Oscars recently and you know, the woman gets up or the guy gets, up and says, this goes to show you that you too can win an Oscar. But if you think about it, that's not really true, right? I mean, there's, there's 300 million people in America. You know, there's one Oscar winner. So maybe 150 million men, 150 million women. Um, and, and so, you know, the odds are pretty, pretty well. So there are more people that don't win is the point. And there are more people. So I had felt that there's so many books, there are actually like a half a dozen books written, how to win a Nobel Prize. 
And I think it's totally ridiculous. I mean, they're silly. They're written by guys or, or women who have won Nobel Prizes or, or just kind of as a joke, like, oh, you have to be a white man, you know, whatever. And, right. But I want to write, you know, and I, uh, the ones written by the Nobel laureates are plentiful. And there's hundreds of books written by Nobel laureates. And, um, and those are always the victory lap, I call it. You know, that's the victory lap book. You know, here I am running around the, the stadium with the gold medal literally around my neck. But m- more people don't win it and more people are left out of it. And it has this, this, this effect. So uh, on one hand, that was, uh, that was almost a relief to be unburdened from this constant quest to win a Nobel Prize. You know, now it's like I say, well, if they want to see if I'm sincere about all the proposals that I have to reform and revitalize the Nobel Prize, uh, you know, and if they want to see if I would even accept it, you know, they can offer it to me and see if I'm sincere. And if I, you know, if I turn them down, then <laughs> no, I'm sincere. So that's a challenge to the Royal Academy, but yeah, I'll, I'll convey but, that. <laughs> but on the deeper level for the embarrassment factor, you know, I was definitely trying to be a voice of reason early on and, and urging maybe less sensationalism than, than other collaboration members were. But I do feel like, you know, I definitely was caught up in it myself. But the good thing about science, it's not like the legal system. So there's no like double jeopardy. So if you make a mistake in science and you come clean and you admit it, um, and in our case, it really wasn't a blunder. It wasn't like we measured something as going faster than the speed of light and we are never going to turn, you know, we actually, you know, didn't connect the, the cables or we didn't take the lens cap off the telescope. That didn't happen. We actually have more confidence than ever. It's gone in, you know, the significance of the signal has gone from it being, you know, one part in 30 million as a statistical fluke, as a fluctuation, as an exponent, to like maybe a, one part in 100 million or so. So the signal is there and it's very prominent. It's very, but the question is, how do you remove the contribution from that humble the schmutz of the solar system, this cosmic dust, and how do you get rid of it is now the subject of a whole new set of experiments that I'm very privileged to be leading called the Simons Observatory. And this is a project with about 200 collaborators. So this would really give the Nobel Committee fits uh, because they have this uh, stupid unwritten rule that they can only give it to three people, which Alfred Nobel never said anything about. Just one of the many things that they do wrong. Uh, but nevertheless, the collaborators that I'm working with from all around, you know, all seven continents, actually, we're building an experiment that will eventually be located in the northern Atacama Desert of Chile at an altitude of over 17,000 feet. So it's so high up, you're over half the oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere. So you have to wear an oxygen mask cannula in your nose like you would at a hospital or something like that. And uh, it's just an otherworldly landscape. I have a telescope that's operating there currently. We're going to upgrade it, and this telescope will have something like 50 times the power of the bicep telescope. So it'll be able to do in a year, you know, what would have taken bicep 50 years to do. And I think it's it's going to be a spectacular thing because we are now looking at not only what we want to see, you know, the if if you say we want to see inflation, we want to see the multiverse. We're also looking for the schmutz, and we're paying attention uh, to this this most you know mercurial force in the universe, which is very poorly understood. Even though the Earth is essentially a giant dust ball, you know, and it's orbiting a star, and it's surrounded by many other dust clouds and dust balls and nebula and all sorts of things. But you know, in summary, I go back to to my hero Galileo, who we began discussing. Galileo looked through his telescope. He saw this constellation, uh, asterism, rather called the Pleiades, which uh, you may recognize as Subaru on the hood of cars. You see these, and they're called the Seven Sisters. There are actually six of them that are bright enough to see with the naked eye. <clears throat> and so if you've ever seen the hood ornament on, on a Subaru, that's what they look like. 
And he looked at them, but he saw them through his telescope differently than he saw them with the naked eye. And what he was seeing, and she didn't know, was tiny particles of dust that were scattering the light of the, of the stars that were embedded within this dust. He claimed that the glowing nebula was actually due to stars that he couldn't see. And he wanted to say that. He wanted that to be true because it would mean that not only is the Earth just another planet, well, the sun is just another star in the Milky Way, and the whole Milky Way is made up of stars. So it wasn't as big a blunder maybe as, as we made, but if the greatest scientist who ever lived, the first astronomer in history to use a telescope, you know, if he can make a blunder and trip on the dust, uh, then uh, you know, we're in pretty good company. Wow. Wonderful conclusion. And I, I think that your tale in general is one that encompasses certainly uh, aspiration and brilliance and, and a lot of wonderful positive qualities, but also equally and probably more important qualities of humility and open-mindedness and the personal growth and evolution. And I think that's really a uh, not just a testament to your scientific acumen, but to your character and to your uh, representation of your Judaism and your faith. So thank, thank you for you sharing that with us. Where can we uh, find this book? Tell us a little bit about that. So it is uh, available on Amazon.com. You can contact uh, me through my website, BrianKeating.com, B-R-I-A-N-K-E-A-T-I-N-G.com. Uh, we also have established an online community called LosingTheNobelPrize.org, all one word, and that is dedicated to proposing, you know, the, the seekers, the dreamers, the, the people that were left out uh, in the past, and also to, to petition to the Royal Academy of Sweden and Norway that they do teshuva, that they, uh, that they beware for themselves. Because in, in a lot of ways, there's, uh, you know, sometimes change comes from within, and that can be very beneficial. And sometimes, you know, like uh, Jeremiah, the community can rail against things that aren't right in an attempt to uh, overthrow things to make make them better for the community. And, have, have they remedy? Have they responded to any of these overtures? Have they, or did they just not listen to you at they've, all? They've responded there. There's uh, you know, so the national identity of Sweden is very much connected to the Nobel prize. It's the days that it's given out are basically a holiday. Sweden is one of the most secular countries in Europe and indeed in the world. And so it is almost like national religion for them. So they're very reluctant. You know, they, they get billions of dollars, you know, in kind of media attention and, and million, hundreds of millions of people watch it online or in person. Um, it's, a, it's very important to the national pride of the countries. They're very reluctant to change anything. No substantive change has occurred to the Nobel Prize in uh, over 40 years, since 1974. And I think, I think it's quite detrimental to the prestige. The, I think eventually, you know, you've seen reform come to politics. You've seen, uh, you know, just one example. No woman has won the Nobel Prize in physics in over 50 years and only two total in history. And I think that's you know, grossly misrepresenting how the modern science looks and how it acts today. And I think all it's going to take is one or two male Nobel Prize winners to, to boycott or turn down the prize. And that's happened the Nobel Peace Prize has been sued by winners of the Nobel Peace Prize, Bishop Tutu and others. You know, my complaints should really be taken as a, you know, as a love letter in some sense and as a hopeful guide rather than a polemic to just tear it all down because I don't think that would be in the best interest. At worst, it's doing tremendous damage to science and at best, it's a kind of a harmless game that people play. But I think, you know, change is going to come and it's change is painful, but reformation is, is, can be a very good thing too. Again, once, just to reiterate, I, I think that that is echoed both in your scientific work 
and uh, and in terms of your personal development. And I think it's a lesson we can all take for our own lives, all of us listening, that notion of constant improvement and, and evolution in our lives. So thank you very much, Dr. Brian Keating. Thank you, Rabbi. It's been a pleasure. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.